am Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. So, Amy, it's almost summertime. Summertime. <laughs> yeah. uh, time for watermelon agua fresca, long sleeves, hats, sunscreen. I think I'm going to upgrade to SPF 50 this year. I don't mm. know. I'm, I'm getting older, <laughs> so it might be time for me to actually just start wearing gloves. Oh, and you're going to wear a visor, too, just like full beekeeper? Is yeah, that what's the, going on the here? veil. 100% beekeeper. You are going old Korean lady. I am. I am. I am. I'm getting older, and this is my right and my privilege. Fine. Please. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because you say that, and when I say summertime, I'm like, oh, beach time, sunbeams, golden tan, and also watermelon agua fresco. So there's our small amount of overlap in what our summer In our Venn diagram like. of summer. Is watermelon we'll sit under uh, an umbrella of shade with watermelon <laughs> agua fresca. So can we talk about this difference in our sunbeam exposure philosophy? <laughs> Which is that I believe that there should be no exposure. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's an Asian thing. We fear the sun. Remember when Padma Lakshmi told us that her grandmother would yell at her teachers in India if they let her go outside for recess? Because you don't want to get darker. Right. She did. Yeah, it's true. She had great sun life advice for us, beach advice, which is don't go out onto the beach until after 4 p.m. because that is when the light is better for bikini photos. Pro tip. Okay. Well, I'm really glad to have my bikini photo pro tip Mm -hmm. as a person who takes so many bikini photos. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, actually, it's true. It's always a beautiful time to take photos. So thank you for our model. And it's really funny because my family is a bunch of like on one side is this light skinned people living in the tropics for several generations. So they're like all this one million freckles that they definitely would not have had in say like Germany. Mm, not from. so much sun and tropical <laughs> stuff in Germany. No. And they're always pressuring me to get tanner because for whatever reason I can. And so they're just like, get out there. You can do it. Do it for the team. Well, yeah, carry the flag. <laughs> Carrying the tanning flag. So <laughs> we have the opposite uh, philosophy as they keep all of the dermatologists in Central and South America in business. <laughs> well, somebody needs to. So that's good. Okay. So I can teach Teach you some safe tanning tips. I promise I do wear sunscreen. And you can teach me some healthy skin protection because I know Koreans have some dope skincare, you know, regimes, right? They definitely do. And we even have some on our site, mashupamericans.com. Just look for a Korean's guide to Korean skincare for non-Koreans. Very straightforward. I like that. Yeah. SEO. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, so that's our public service announcement for the day. Moving on, we have a great conversation on tap today with Dexter Thomas. He is a culture writer for the LA Times, a black kid from California who speaks fluent Japanese, your guide to the best barbershops in Tokyo, and an almost PhD, an ABD, all but dissertation, on Japanese hip-hop. Oh my god, you can get a PhD in Japanese hip-hop? Indeed you can. so amazing. (laughs) I cannot wait to learn more. Okay, on to the show. So, Dexter, thank you so much for being on the show. How do you mesh up? Well, I am a kid from San Bernardino. Spent 10, 15% of my life in uh, Japan and China. I play a heck of a lot of video games. I'm really good at Contra. I listen to every kind of music. And I just learned to skateboard not too long ago. And you have six-inch <laughs> hair. Your hair is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and you. I can see it, but our people can how, how inches? Like eight? Six? 
four? I, uh, I can't, the scale is... I, I don't know. May, maybe six. I'm actually not sure. How tall are you with your hair? And does that count as part of your height? I actually have no idea. Um, <laughs> I, I've never measured it, rather. Um, I'm six without. Six feet is like a tall but normal dude. Six, six That's is normal. Like, That's normal. Six, six is... That's big. It makes sitting in cars interesting sometimes. I was wondering before we started how you're in, what the headphone situation is going to be. Oh, yeah. You know, you just wear it behind. Well, I had an afro before this, um, and so this is actually much easier than that. How often do you have to maintain the hair? Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's like anybody else. You know, you really should go to the barbershop once every couple weeks or so. It's like anything else. It's like, you know, as, as a black man, you got to find a barber you trust. Mm-hmm. And I've lived in plenty of places where that was very hard to do. So um, that's always a struggle. Do you remember your first time at the barbershop? Oh, my gosh. You know, what? I think we actually, when I was a little kid, I remember somebody coming actually to our house. Maybe it was like a neighbor or something like that. Um, but that was probably the, the first time I remember. I, I remember being in barbershops when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's always a struggle. Like you, you being like I'll be in upstate New York. Um, where's some black people, but it's not a whole lot of them. And so it's a little bit of a gamble. And then, of course, you know, like I'll be in Japan or something like that. And, you know, good luck. Um, <laughs> right. It's actually a couple barbers out there. And I've I've just recently, um, somebody hit me up on Twitter and said, hey, this is a weird question, but you lived in Japan, right? And I was like, yeah. And they said, uh, I'm thinking about going, going to Tokyo for a while. Um, this is a weird question, but can you tell me about a barber? I was like, that's not a weird question at all. <laughs> no, that seems essential. I got you. <laughs> I gave him, you know, I gave him some numbers. I gave him some names. And I was like, okay, you know, here's here's this dude from Brooklyn. He's living there right now. Um, you know, this is, the, this is the bridge you cross. You go right there. And then I even put out on Twitter, like, hey, my other black friends on Twitter, um, you know, on Twitter right now, anybody got any other spots, too? Because, you know, it's a thing. No, it's so real. And I think that that's the kind of thing that's like every Korean girl who grew up like in the 80s, basically every Korean lady my age that's American, Mm. had what we call the lamyeon perm, which is a terrible at-home perm that our moms gave to us that made our hair look like dried ramen. (laughs) Okay. Everybody did it. And I feel like there are these kind of rites of initiation in which, you know, people talk a lot of shit about like getting your, your... card revoked whatever that card right. is like getting right. your black yeah. card revoked or getting your like yeah. jewish card revoked or getting whatever mm-hmm. it's bullshit and then on the other hand it's also like there are our experiences that shape us that are kind of in some ways silly and in other ways so essential yeah barbershop yeah, one of them i think sometimes those even get almost blown out of proportion because even within you know, say a certain ethnic group or, you know, community, however you want to say it. There's people who who experience it in in completely different ways. That's absolutely um, true. Yes. You know, I mean you you could be a black kid that, you know, grew up in completely white neighborhoods and you've never really even been in a black barbershop. That's entirely possible. And you you know, it, it may mean that you just had a really great barber who knew what to do, or you just had screwed up hair for the first eighteen <laughs> years of your life and you had no idea. And then all of a sudden you end up going to Morehouse or something like that and they're like well, what are you doing? <laughs> and they took you over to the barbershop and then they hooked you up. But And that's entirely possible. You know what I mean? Like food. You know what I mean? You you end up finding out that like there's certain food that you just thought everybody ate. You find out that people in another region don't. And it, it just kind of weirds you out. Mm-hmm. You know, so th- those are yeah, this is like these rites of passage, but they don't necessarily fit. 
right. everybody. So you speak Japanese. You've lived in Japan. You're you you almost have your PhD. How did Japan and Japanese culture become part of your life as this black kid growing up in California? A series of random events. Basically, one day somebody showed me they were on the bus. I was 16, and they had this sheet of notebook paper, and I think like their big brother's girlfriend was Japanese or something like that, and they had written down kind of the quote-unquote Japanese alphabet, you know, just the phonetic one. And I said, oh, what's that? And they would kind of tell me, oh, you, this is, you know, ah, uh, you, oh, you know, they're kind of saying it. I'm like, oh, man, that looks easy. Make me a copy of that. And that was literally it. This was just because, like, I was in Spanish class in high school, and just languages just seemed interesting. I'd never studied another language in my life. I was mm-hmm. in Spanish already. And just at once it was like a code that nobody, some people around you didn't understand, but then you could talk to extra people. And there was, I didn't have any Japanese people around me to talk to. And I had really no desire to. It was just like, oh, here's these weird scribbles that if you put them together, maybe they mean something. Um, that just seemed really wild to me. One day somebody saw me looking at it um, at a soccer field. I finished playing and they said, hey, is that Japanese? I was like, yeah. And they're like, you want to go to Japan? Okay, how do I do that? <laughs> and it just so happened that San Bernardino, so my city where you know I grew up, had like a sister city with a city in Japan, um, in Tokyo. I applied for it, really not thinking I was going to get in. I think I'm probably the first black kid in the history of the program to go. Um, but it happened. So that was my first time going to Japan, so I was 16. So I stayed with the host family, you know, again, knowing no Japanese. And they were kind of struggling to talk to me. You know, they take me home and they're like, what do you want to eat? And I'm like, shoot, I don't know. And they say, you want taco? I was like, yeah, I want tacos. Absolutely, I want tacos. And I'm like almost crying in my room like, oh, man, they know where I'm from. They're from California. They're about to hook me up with Mexican food. This is amazing. They're about to hook me with some tacos. And they call me downstairs. And I'm looking at the table like, where's the tacos? And they're like, oh, that's a taco right there. And so taco, taco in Japanese means octopus. And I had absolutely no idea of this. So there's this thing with purple suckers on the table. And that was the first meal I ever had in Japan. And I was, I was very very upset but anyway so um and that was sort of my first lesson that like yeah this, this is not how you can't just go in there with no knowledge um kind of somewhere along the way I was working at the radio station um at my school UC Riverside you know I would see some Japanese punk records come in people would be all excited about it and I'd be like why I'm like oh Japan's cool I'm like really not really, man. It's just sort of whatever. They have this thing called taco. Um, yeah, that was really about it. <laughs> I started wondering, you know, do they actually have hip-hop? I had no idea. Right, and you were a big hip-hop fan for yeah, your life? I was, yeah, I was listening to a lot of, yeah, hip-hop, definitely, um, a lot of electronic. And so I'm working there, and I realized that other people are getting, you know, their genres. We would get a Japanese record come in for their genres, but never a Japanese record from my genre. And I just kind of like, do we, does that even exist? And the best thing I could find was like one mix CD. And it was mostly just instrumental by a Japanese DJ. And I said, you know, let me see if I can do something with this. So I put together some applications. I applied repeatedly, got rejected repeatedly. And then uh, one of those, I I slipped in. And uh, I got to go to Japan for two years and studied Japanese hip hop. You know, um, ended up flipping into a a graduate career. That was long, but that's it. (laughs) That is incredible. Hip-hop is 
I mean, it's the universal language, right? Like everybody from every culture loves hip hop. And so in that, there's there's something like really kind of incredibly fluid about mm-hmm. hip hop, but it's also essentially black, like black American. Mm-hmm. How does that work in Japan? Like how kind of how does that translate across all these cultures that love it so much? So we're literally talking about my dissertation right now. A, B, D. But, Look, I'm just going to help you write. Yeah. We can outline this. Thank you. Thank you. We can just outline it and I'll just, I'll, you know, I'll just record this and we'll, we'll just, you know, I'm just going to turn this in. Yeah. And then they'll take it and we'll be good. I'll, I'll have the PhD and walk out. Yeah, no problem. But the question of can we be Japanese and do this music? Mm-hmm. Can we be not black and do this black music is, I think, actually central everywhere. Macklemore keeps trying to make songs about it. That's how central it is. Um, and bless his heart. But, you know, he's, he's, he's doing what he can. Um, it's, it's a tough topic. And so this is something that does exist in Japan also. And a lot of that is due to the American influence and, you know, the quote-unquote Western influence. Um, and what I mean by that is you got a lot of rock musicians who have absolutely no anxiety in Japan, who have absolutely no anxiety towards doing their genre. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of electronic musicians who have absolutely no anxiety in their genre. Uh, punk. Hip-hop, it turns into, well, we're not black, and so we don't have the same rhythm black people do. Mm-hmm. Which I'm really not into that so much. You know, that idea that there's some sort of, like, essential rhythmic difference about black people... I know some people, that's something that's sort of important to them mm-hmm. or, or as a belief, I guess, but I don't necessarily buy that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there, there's an anxiety basically towards blackness in Japan, um, which interestingly enough hasn't always existed. That came along much later and it came along um, basically when white people went to Japan. That's really where it came from. Um, before that, it's you are outsider, you're outsider. That's pretty much it. They don't really care what color you are. Um, you know, this is quite some time ago, but especially with music, um, that, that's sort of a new phenomenon. You, c- I can always feel it, that there is kind of an anxiety and that people are comparing themselves to black people constantly. Like they don't have the right to be doing hip hop, to be making hip hop? It's not the right. So that's something we have here, which is an anxiety about is this morally correct to be stealing black people's music? By and large, black, Japanese people couldn't care less about that. It's not about... Is this morally right? Is it, can I physically do this? So there's a book in Japan called Kujinrizmukan no Himitsu or something like that. Like literally the the secret of black people's rhythm. And so it came out in the <laughs> mid 90s. Like this is literally what it's called. This is a book and you can buy this. You can find it on Amazon. It's in like its eighth printing. Um, pretty well regarded. And so you can buy this. And, um, and it's dead serious that black people have this inborn... Rhythm thing. There's another one, which is even bigger. I forget what it's called. It's like an inch thick. It's another book. And it's basically called like Black People Rhythm, something like that. And there's stuff in there which says like, yeah, black people, they're in the savannah. And so they had to like feel the rhythm of like the hunt of the lions. And so that's why like the jazz musicians do this. It's like, bro, what are you even talking about? And so Japanese people will not say, okay, yeah, so, you know, the... Wolfgang, Amadeus, Mozart, you know, he, they had this... Orchestral knowledge of Yeah, their orchestral knowledge came from when they lived in caves and had to, like, (laughs) scratch out, you know, stuff on on the cave. And nobody does this. But, 
So white people are the norm. Black people are this sort of other exception. And so that's really where it comes from is the model minority thing exists internationally. And Japan is an absolute victim of this. And so Japan genuinely, and this is the country in general, the society genuinely believes that and wants to be closer to whiteness. Mm-hmm. They feel that they're different from the rest of Asia. Japan? In, in Japanese, we, like, we use the word Asia to talk about everybody except for Japan. Oh, as a Korean person, I understand this. Oh yeah, no. So this is this is. I'm sure this is very new information. I'm you know may, maybe I'm sort of like moving too fast for you. You might not know about these things, but there's sort of like this weird racial thing. But yeah. Oh, God. So um, so there's like this separation away from the rest of Asia, inching towards white people as an ideal. The best way to get yourself towards whiteness, because you can't just say we're like white people. What you have to do is say we're not like black people. Hmm. And that moves you towards it's it's much easier to say that I'm not this than I am this. Mm-hmm. Because what what you do is you, if you go up to like, you know, you go up to France and say, hey, we're just like you. They're like, no, you're not. <laughs> you guys eat with chopsticks. But if you say, hey, those black people are savages and France is like. We think that too. <laughs> Come on over with us. You're in our camp for we a little bit really until we identify. get sick and yeah. we kick you mm-hmm. out. That's sort of the situation. But then you have a kid who wants to make quote unquote black music. And because of the society that they're in, and it's it's subconscious, but the idea that whiteness is sort of a goal and blackness is something to kind of push yourself away from. And it's, it's never overt, but... When you try to make that stuff, you feel a pressure that you wouldn't feel if you were doing, quote unquote, white music. Right. I know like this dude who like he was starting the discos. He ran discos like back in the 70s. And so like when black musicians would go to Japan, they would go and play in his discos. Ebony would write about this stuff like it's, it's known. And his parents would tell him, why are you doing all this black stuff? And this is a conversation I had with him. And he was like, you know, if it, if it would have been like white musicians that I was working with, it would have been like, oh, you're hanging out with the Americans, and that's that makes me a little uncomfortable, but I kind of get it. But hanging out with the black people, that's there's something up with that. Mm-hmm. Light is a feather when I'm floating through, reading through the daily news, measuring the hurt within the golden rule. Centimeters of ether, I'm heating the speaker. Motivational teacher with words that burn people. Singing the headlines, line with discord. It's either genocide or the planet in uproar. Never good. The rules of paradise are never nice. The best laid plan. One of my favorite television shows in the world was obviously Dave Chappelle mm-hmm. and The Chappelle Show. And right. um, the the best, can I just make that statement right now? <laughs> the ahead. best skit to me mm-hmm. is obviously the racial draft. Me and black delegation. Two Tiger Woods. No surprises there, Tom. The richest and most dominant athlete in the world. His father, black. His mother, Thai. Well, it doesn't matter anymore because now he is officially black. Dave, the Asians have got to be upset. There's no question about that, Robert, but he had to think about it. He's been discriminated against in his time. He's had death threats, and he dates a white woman. Sounds like a black guy to me. (laughs) Right. For anybody that needs a refresher, it's where... All these people of different races get mm-hmm. to draft somebody into theirs. Tiger Woods right. gets drafted into being black. Wu Tang 
gets right. drafted into being Asian. Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> so, you that know, was pretty good. I think there's like a really core thing here, which is that like black people are into Asian culture. Asian people are really into black culture. Why do you think that is? You're getting a PhD. Honestly, everybody's into black culture. Well, that's a true story. Everybody's into black culture. And I mean, there's a few reasons for that. But I think you go a lot of places. And for a lot of people, black represents rebellion. And it represents revolution. It represents progress. It also is represents cool. It does. And it represents oppression. And that's precisely why, actually, it represents cool. Hmm. I think I did something to Guardian about how black people are, are cool and... That's not necessarily a good thing because black people essentially represent oppression. But, I mean, example is in, in Japan, they teach about Martin Luther King. Hmm. Every kid, every kid knows about Martin Luther King. They don't necessarily know about An Chang Ho, who, if you're going to make a comparison, he's not the same, right? And so this, this is a Korean leader. This is during, you know, occupation period when Japan was occupying Korea. So if they're going to know anything... Any of those two. Martin Luther King doesn't have almost anything to do with Japan. An Chang Ho has a whole lot to do with Japan. <laughs> right. So why aren't they, like, dedicating a whole bunch of time to this dude? So granted, you know, Martin Luther King, you, you read about him in English class. And actually, that's something I'm really trying to figure out. Like, where, when did this start? Why? And so I wish I had that answer. Um, it's, it's something that I've been meaning to, to read about or to learn about. I, I haven't really been able to easily find that. And that's precisely why hip-hop is so fascinating to a lot of people because playing black music, listening to black music, and better yet, making black music is the best way to say, hey, I'm a rebel, I want revolution, I want change. Look at Germany. In the, I think, like late 80s, early 90s, um, there was a whole bunch of like these racists, and this is some I've read about, so I'm not a super expert on this, but I have read that um, there were all these racists Things happened at the raves with electronic music. It got really, really xenophobic. And there was this dude named Alec Empire who later started a group called Atari Teenage Riot, which is one of the best band names ever. They started playing black music specifically. Everybody's making techno, and this dude goes and like, all right, I'm going to put some James Brown samples in my techno. Hmm. Specifically because... Black music represents revolution. And that's why he's doing it. And so I think everybody's into black culture. And everywhere, black history, you know, they people use images of the Black Panthers, people use images of the of Martin Luther King, depending on how what kind of stomach they have for for heaviness, because we've, you know, we've kind of relegated Martin Luther King to kind of this teddy bear image, unfortunately. But that's the, half of the answer, I think, is that really everybody's interested in black culture. But in terms of, um, quote-unquote, Asian culture, if you're talking like East Asian culture, say, I mean, yeah, Wu-Tang's the best example of that. <laughs> Wu-Tang's the best example of that. I mean, they're <laughs> like, they are named after a mountain in China. Like, I remember telling one of my one of my Chinese friends up at, um, at school, what was this dude from? I think he's Singapore. And he's like, oh, what kind of music you listen to? And I was like, Wu-Tang. He's like... Wu Tang, like yeah, yeah, this hip hop group, and he's like, Wu Tang is a Wu Dung, that's a mountain. Why do you people have a <laughs> a rap group named after a mountain? Are these just some weird kids? I'm like, no, they're a really famous group. Maybe it's a mountain in Staten Island. You don't know. You know what? Maybe it is. Maybe it's hidden somewhere. But you you look at Bruce Lee. Have you seen that interview with Bruce Lee? This is black and white. It's amazing. I think everybody should see that. When I do the Chinese film, I'll try my best 
not to be as American as I, you know, have been adjusted to for the last 12 years in the States. And, but when I go back to the States, it seems to be the other way around. You know You're what too I mean? exotic, eh? Yeah, man. I mean, they're trying to get me to do too many things that are really for the sake of being exotic. Is this interview um, with this like Canadian TV show where he, he's explaining basically why he thinks he won't be allowed to lead in Hollywood, basically because Hollywood does not want a strong Asian American actor. Mm-hmm. They're not ready for that. They find that threatening. And so you look at Bruce Lee's stuff, and a lot of his stuff was like really fairly explicitly anti-oppression, you know, in, in his own way. You know, there, there's that one where he's fighting um, Chuck Norris. I think isn't it Chuck Norris? There's like a scene with Chuck Norris, and he wins. And he's super adamant about, like, I had to beat the white dude. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of kids are watching that, and they're feeling that, and they're like, you know what, this struggle is very similar to mine. And, you know, obviously it's not Bruce, just Bruce Lee, but the little bits of pop culture that a lot of black kids would get looks like stuff that we know. Yeah. and Or at the very least, we can, we can sort of bend it into our own experience. Right. Um, but, yeah, that exists. You know, what I love about that relationship and that fluidity is that it actually does embrace East Asian culture. And that, you know, because I think what we see currently with everything that's going on um, and the really loud conversation happening right now around whitewashing in Hollywood, like Mm -hmm. with Ghost in the Shell and Doctor Strange, the phrase that I, I hear, the one that has stuck with me so much is that you know, as you say, everybody loves black culture, which I think is true, mm-hmm. is that everybody in Hollywood. They love black people. Right. Everybody. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Hollywood loves Asian culture. Everybody loves Asian culture as mm-hmm. long as there's no Asian people involved. You know, it's like, so let's have a wise Tibetan monk, but they're not Tibetan. There's nothing yeah. Asian about that person. <laughs> like, that's sort of the wild thing about, like, I've been meaning to write about Ghost in the Shell. Because Ghost in the Shell is super interesting because, I mean, her name is super Japanese. Yeah. It's like cyberpunk Japanese. But she's got black hair. It's fine. ScarJo can be Japanese. No big deal, right? I mean, her her name, it's like a reference to like some like Japanese mythical weapon. <laughs> right. And, and, and like her last name and then or something like that. And her first name, Motoko, that's that's like an alternate reading of the word like element, like the periodic elements. And so like her name is super intentional. And we're just throwing that out. We're just uncomfortable with that. But, and that that's sort of one of the weird things, though, is that the conversation about about whitewashing or you know yellow face, and and the conversation say about Oscar so white. You know, the person who started that, April Rain, she was very explicit in that this is not just about black people. Everybody missed that. Everybody, not everybody, because. I mean, shoot, I wrote about it. I didn't miss that. Actually, one of the writers, um, Travell at L.A. Times, definitely did not miss that. But a lot of people, it just turned into like, oh, you're just complaining about black people. And it's like, it's not black people. We're talking everything. We're talking people of color in general. We're talking about LGBT people. We're talking about a whole bunch of different things. But because of that, I think these two conversations have gotten extremely separated. You know, like the ghost in the shell thing with the Oscars and these are parts of the same exact conversation Mm -hmm. it's just that when we talk about them we actually don't understand that these are connected in general 
it's frustrating. It's yeah. frustrating to see. How many languages do you speak? I guess four. My best is English. I'm pretty good in English. Japanese, uh, Mandarin Chinese, and Spanish. What is your favorite swear word in any one of those languages? Uh, there's not a lot of swear words in Japanese. Tamada, I guess, in, <laughs> in Chinese. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like F your mom, kind of. Mm, um, that's a good, but... that's all tidy, wrapped up in one word. If I was going to pick a language to swear in other than English, it would be probably Chinese. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Wouldn't everybody? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cantonese is better, though. Cantonese is better to swear in, but well, I don't really speak Cantonese I have a like question that. for a black man who understands Cantonese is how do you feel when you're with a bunch of Cantonese speaker and you're hearing them say nega, nega, nega all day long? <laughs> Yo. Okay, so that so that that's that's Mandarin, by the way. Is that, that that's Mandarin? Mandarin? I thought that, that was Cantonese. To me, Cantonese doesn't sound like that. No, so I went to I went to one of my real good friends' house. Um, if you're listening, you know who you are. <laughs> and this is a long time ago. And I, I I knew I just got to college, I knew nothing about Chinese. And I went to her house and they started talking about something. So naga, like naga, like it's it means two <laughs> things. It's like that that thing, that thing over there, but also you say it when you're it's kind of like the word like. Yeah, it's just a twitch. In English, it's just you're kind of, it's like a filler word. You're trying to think of what to say. So it's like, like, uh, that thing, uh, like, like, they were pointing into something in my general direction and they're saying that, like, ah, nigga, 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 nigga. And I'm just like, ma'am, where did you just bring me to? Did you bring me to your home so that your mother could call me the N word? Because if that's what we're doing, then just your whole family, you can just go jump off a bridge somewhere and I'm I'm going to leave in your car, by the way, because you drove me here. I'm I'm leaving. I'm taking your keys, just I'm going home. <laughs> but I figured something else must be happening. So I pulled her aside and I said, Okay, your mom said something <laughs> to me. <laughs> Why did she say that? And, and she explained it very kindly. And so I that was that was I think actually that was my first Chinese word was <laughs> Me thinking somebody was calling me the N-word, which um, I wouldn't recommend that. That was Dexter Thomas, culture writer for the L.A. Times. You can see his work there and follow him on Twitter at DexDigi. Wow, that was super interesting and wonderful and raised a lot of questions. For example, where in the world do you get your best haircut? Um, I think that would have to be the Tokyo subway. <laughs> yes, probably. I think all good things happen there, right? There's the best ramen, the best sushi, apparently maybe a great barbershop. So, I think we yeah. can probably just all live our best lives in the Tokyo subway stations. Done and done. All right, well, there. <laughs> I have one super important question for you before we wrap up. All right, ready? Who in the racial draft is your number one draft pick? Woo, it's a tough one. Um, I don't want to leave anybody out, but in this moment, I think I'm going to take uh, Gina Rodriguez from Ooh, Jane the Virgin. Ooh, Gina. Yes, yes. She's wonderful. She's smart. She's talented. She's a Latina and also has a Jewish sister and Jewish family. So I feel like Latin Jewish woman, she's oh, in. Latin Jews for the win. Who are you going to take? 
Oh, I'm taking Ridza. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. And also, thank you so much for sharing all of your personal stories about belonging and tribes after our last episode. It was a big, hard one for us, really meaningful, and we loved hearing your stories, too. So thank you. And so with that, we're out. The Mashup Americans are me, Rebecca Lair. And me, Amy Choi. If you want Mashup news stories delivered to you each and every week, sign up for our newsletter at mashupamericans.com slash newsletter. You better do it. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Besos. See ya. See ya.